Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome to the Ask Abhijit Show. We are back live, and uh, it's good to be back on this live stream with you all. So let us see who all is there with us tonight. Uh, as you, as you would know, I hope that uh, today is a uh, it's a live chat show, which means I'm going to be taking all the questions from the live chat, nothing from the comments. The comments uh, episode will be tomorrow. So this is your opportunity to ask your best questions and I will try and pick as many of them as possible. So let's see how, who all is there on the live stream. I can see Varad Desai, uh, Yogesh, Yuvraj, Shushrut, Leo Messi, Herbie on Wheels, Shubhayu, Pahadi, Sarwar, Saurabh Jat, Amisha, Sagnik, uh, Narayan, Yesterday, Alpha, Harish, Animi Art, Pradeep, Jay, Asmenor, VK, Ibo, Hatela, Raja Kumar, Fatty Just Ate, Vladimir, Vladimirovich, Putin, Avinash Mishra, Apratihat Singh, Civilizationist, Akash, Dr. A, Debashish, Twilight, Arman Sharma, Arman Sharma, Abhishek, Chirag, Vichitra Ladka, <laughs> Lord Shiva, Shashank Hegde, Overlord, Prashanna, Rahul, Exasperated, Farago, Rishi, Eril, Jasman, Raj Singh, Krishan 63, Karan Nalawa, GK, Lage Raho Online, Ankan, Shrikant, Liger, Sharma is Big, Mani Sundar, The Dragon Emperor, Dungar Singh, Chauhan, O Lotus, Shivam Singh, Adarsh, Giga, Chadwa, <laughs> Namit, Anthalin Paul, Durga M, Om Bekerikar, Rama, Bakasur, Sagar, Nilesh, Pavyadeep, Ajay, DSP, Chat DSP, Saurabh Badoria, Totan, Bimla, Matteo Perez, Dhruba Jyoti, XYZ, Tushar Kasana, Arnab Singh, Piyush Jaiswal, Feminist Slayer, Chitan Aradhya, and lots and lots and lots of people. Thank you so much, everybody, for being on the live chat and on, on and being on the live stream. I really appreciate it. Let's see some more people. Dr. Jayshankar Supremacy, Harish Animi Art, Abhinav, Achal Shahi, Suhan, Vyom, Manohar, Adya Prakash Das, Ketan Vankhede, Mevan Shwa, Lingdo, and everybody else. So, great to be with you all tonight. So, let's take the questions. Let's begin with questions from the live stream. Let's see, uh, from the live chat. So, go ahead and start asking your questions and I'll take as many as possible. GoDB says global warming, North Sea route opens. Will Indian influence in Indian Ocean be affected? Okay, so we're talking about global warming and the North Sea route. So what are we talking about? We have to look at the map, obviously, to understand this. Uh, the map has to be brought into the picture. Where's the map? Here's the map. Here's the map. So we're talking about global warming, North Sea route opens. So we, we're talking about the north, the northern, around the North Pole. So the North Pole is somewhere over here, as you can see. The globe is 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 rotating around the north-south pole axis. North pole is somewhere here, and typically this this Arctic Ocean is mostly frozen for much of the year, if not the entire year. Definitely seven eight months a year at least it is frozen because of the cold temperatures. But now with global warming, this uh, sea will be open uh, and and not frozen for. Um, for certain times of the year, it, it, in the number of days it is not frozen will increase, which means that there will be uh, trade routes opening up over here, and you will be uh, people will be able to exploit the resources that are available in this region more effectively than before. So, does 
what does this mean for india does it mean that india's influence in the indian ocean be affected no it will not be affected because see india is over here the northern route the northern sea the arctic ocean is over here so it's a huge distance and how in on earth will it possibly affect india's ability to influence the indian ocean so uh, clearly there's no co- connection between these two things uh, obviously india would also like to participate see if you look at which country uh, is over here it's it's obviously russia so much of the coastline of the arctic ocean is uh, it's 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 russian territory and russia's exclusive economic zone and russia's zone of influence and russia and india have a good relationship the russians have come out with a new with it with a modified version of their foreign policy which they have officially announced which says that russia would like to cooperate deeply with china and india going forward so these are the two major nations that it would it will uh, be cooperating with extensively so i'm sure india can also uh, participate in the trading activity and whatever else um, resource uh, you know looking at the resources and all that in the north sea region in the arctic ocean region so it will help india definitely with russia's cooperation but it will not reduce or affect india's influence in the indian ocean region in any any significant way whatsoever all right so that's the first question that we have taken uh right let's see uh other questions let us see let us see tell us something about the prakrit language says ritesh raj was it a sister language of sanskrit is it still spoken no 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 i i i know there are lots of youtubers and all who and, and, and people who claim that prakrit came before sanskrit which is <laughs> which is reasonable it is it is funny I and mean, it's not even funny prakrit is the, it was not a single language first of all prakrit it was a bunch of languages the prakrits all right the oldest language that we know of in the history of humanity is vedic or possibly pre vedic sanskrit uh, linguists talk about a hypothetical proto indo european language well that language you know so that's what you will find in all books about linguistics in all history textbooks which reference linguistics in research papers and articles the truth is that the oldest language that we know of is vedic sanskrit and obviously that language would have evolved out of something else which would not be proto indo european it would be pre vedic sanskrit that's what it is so uh, and these prakrit languages they emerged later sometime in the first millennium bc and uh, it's very likely that uh, you know in the post vedic age and before the uh, first millennium bc there was this uh, this time period the great mahajanapada era and all that in which lots of different language of languages would have been spoken which would have emerged out of sanskrit upper branch languages these were the prakrits and the prakrits were spoken until the first millennium ad and maybe even slightly later so we had maharashtri prakrit we had the old gurjari language which is the mother the ancestor of the gujarati and rajasthani languages and so much more you had the magadhi various magadhi languages every single language that exists in india today is a descendant of the older prakrit languages and the prakrits they all emerged out of sanskrit so it was not a sister language of sanskrit or any such thing it was a descendant language of sanskrit it emerged out of the various uh, corruptions that uh, that uh, sanskrit underwent languages evolve languages uh, change people you know people who live in different parts of the world they they will eventually their languages evolve so if you look at the persian language the old persian language that was spoken that was spoken during the achaemenid period the first millennium bc 
that itself you could regard it as a prakrit language because it emerged out of sanskrit so it was significantly closely uh, related to sanskrit you could you could actually if you read the inscriptions that are written in the cuneiform script but which are in the old persian language they sound very much like sanskrit with certain pronunciations changed and some words here and there have been changed and some grammar is kind of modified but overall if you understand sanskrit or even hindi you will understand significant portions of what was written uh, at the time so the prakrit languages are descendant daughter languages of sanskrit not sister languages there are lots of youtubers who these days spread this propaganda that prakrit came before sanskrit buddhism came before hinduism all this nonsense please don't pay attention to this nonsense please don't pay all right okay uh, and once again lots of questions i saw a question but it disappeared uh, is there a chance that Shinzo Abe's assassination had involvement of the US because Mr. Abe wanted Japan to have an independent foreign policy? The assassin did not have a reasonable reason also. Listen, do we have any evidence of this or that or whatever? We have no evidence. The assassin, I mean, did anybody interview the assassin? No, he was taken into custody, custody by the Japanese government. And then we have no idea what's happened with him. So he, so we don't know what his what his real motives were. He was definitely an ex-army or ex-ex-military person who who well did this. Uh, so so we don't really know what his motives were. He may perhaps have stated certain motives, but the real motives we don't really know. So without evidence, we cannot say who was behind this. Possibilities are open many possibilities are open but if you speculate and make a claim without any evidence well you're not going to be taken seriously so is there a chance a chance well there are chances of lots of things there is a small amount of probability that you know if you if probability is a hundred percent then you take out various slices and lots of different options are there but we don't know which is the truth in the absence of any actual evidence, disclosed evidence. So I don't know who was behind it. Is there a possibility that somebody or the other was involved? The possibility is there. But we don't have conclusive evidence of that. And therefore, yeah, can't say anything. Shri Joseph Stalin, Stalin says Bhojpuri is superior to Sanskrit. All right, sir. <laughs> uh, all right. Utkarsh says, what's your take on Russia's new foreign policy? So the Russian foreign policy was recently unveiled. And uh, it's a long, long document. I'll not put it on the screen because I don't have it open anywhere. But uh, yeah, uh, so the Russian foreign ministry has come up with a modified, updated version of their foreign policy just yesterday or day before yesterday. And there's a lot. It's a very lengthy document. It will take you at least 10 minutes or so, I would say, I, if, you, if you want to read it thoroughly, properly. Um, but what's in, what's interesting is that they are focusing on two major nations, uh, focusing as in cooperation. So these two major nations are, Russia, uh, are, are China and India. So the Russians have said uh, uh, they say that they they have a very privileged and excellent relationship with India and similar with China, and they're going to be focusing a lot on these two nations to cooperate from the perspective of the mutual national interest and mutual uh, mutual benefit. So, uh, and obviously they speak about the US and the fact that the US uh, seeks to destroy and, and defeat Russia strategically and uh, on those things. Uh, so I have not uh, studied it in great detail, but these things stood out to me straight, straight away. So, so, uh, 
so it's clear that the russians would like to create a a new revised world order that is no longer completely led by the us uh, the the focus is definitely on, on establishing you could say uh, a parallel system of inter, of of uh, the international order so you're going to have a bifurcation of the international order on the one one hand you have the so called rules based world order of the united states on the other hand we're going to have a different system that's going to be led by russia india china and where lots of other nations are interested you have the brics uh group of nations the five nations including russia india china south africa and uh, brazil as well other nations are are have expressed their desire to join it major nations like saudi arabia which is one of the major oil producers and mexico and lots of other nations want to join brics indonesia also various african nations so brics looks like it's set to expand so uh, we're going to we're going to see lots of changes now and russia's foreign policy is calibrated to make these things happen so uh, so it's clear that there's a big change a big upheaval that's that's currently happening in real time in the global world order and the russia's and russia's new foreign policy is a reflection of that so they are stating certain things explicitly that they will cooperate with india and china and they are also talking about certain things have to be read between the lines so that's my first reaction to the russian foreign policy maybe i should look it look into it in great detail and perhaps make a separate video about that but yeah that's what it is so india is playing a kind of privileged role in this entire matter it is significantly it is it is cooperating in a significant manner with the western bloc with the us and nato and eu uh, nations india has a good relationship with these nations obviously the us has not been happy about india's refusal to uh, to play along with their sanctions on russia but apart from that india has an excellent relationship uh, with uh, reasonably good relationship with the west india also is a part of brics so it has a good relationship with the east as well a, a privileged relationship with russia a not good relationship with china but things could possibly improve possibly depending on how mr xi jinping in um, goes about things his nation is also under a lot of stress and strain right now a lot of pressure uh, things are not going as per they had ex- the, the way they had expected so india is playing a very important and interesting role india is not taking one side or the other and india could end up being the bridge between the western bloc and the eastern bloc and india could be the nation that uh, nobody really uh, is afraid of because india doesn't have any expansionist hegemonic ambitions and it's a nation that everybody can essentially trust so, so india could could eventually in the next 20 years emerge as the global uh, diplomatic center of the world maybe maybe you should we should relocate the united nations to india or something like that so that's what's happening time will tell us how it goes but that's that's the deal and that's what i think of the russian foreign policy for now uh, Will I be watching WrestleMania tomorrow? No, I don't watch WrestleMania anymore. I used to watch it when I was a teenager, when I was a kid. Uh, these days I watch UFC, MMA, mixed martial arts. That's much more real. WrestleMania is is all scripted, you know. The WWE, it's all scripted. It's world wrestling entertainment. It's not real fighting. Obviously, the injuries are real. People do get injured, the wrestlers and all. But overall, it's it's scripted. It's more about entertainment. The UFC, MMA is actual is about actual fighting. and you can see it i mean you can you can tell when you see it so these days i'm more into mma i'm more into the ufc i watch it whenever i can find the time to watch it i prefer watching it live but you can also watch uh, 
rewatch uh, you know recorded fights and all that so yeah i will not be watching the wwe but i do try and catch whenever i can the ufc and bellator as well if it's these is it's not available in india but we can we can look for it if it's there rajat says how will chat gpt like generative ai affect our lives and most importantly our jobs how is the future going to be like generative ai is completely transforming the world right now in the past people had to hire research assistants professors would make their students slave for them do all the all the donkey work all the all the boring work and then they would take all that together and and write their books or their research papers or whatever now you don't need that you have a virtual assistant that you can well all you have to do is pay 20 dollars a month i mean uh, chat gpt 3.5 is completely free and chat gpt 4 is i think 20 dollars a month you also have google bard you also have bing ai well bing and chat gpt are essentially the same thing but they behave in different ways uh, they they are different flavors of the same thing you also have things like uh, stable diffusion and and dal e and uh, there's this thing on discord which is all about generating images based on various prompts so uh, that so you can create any kind of artwork in anybody's style nowadays uh, there was a, an issue with the fingers it would make fingers look weird in the past i think that is being addressed right now so soon you will have extremely realistic images that the ai can spit out at a moment's notice uh, i'm sure obviously that also will cost some money but it's not a whole lot of money it's not a whole of money a lot of money it's not unaffordable for most people not for students obviously students cannot uh, spend that kind of money but once you once you have a job and all you can set aside a bit of money if you if you are so inclined so uh, so it's going to put artists out of business but you can tell sometimes you know these days you can still tell what kind of art is ai generated but as newer and better more powerful iterations of these ais come out um the art is going to be indistinguishable for, from reality from from let's say a photographic image or the art created by an artist so eventually you're going to be able to create any kind of image that you want any any image that you want these days on twitter you you had all these uh, fake ai images coming out of donald trump being arrested and and the pope wearing some weird uh, white uh jacket or something like that and lots of images of elon musk keep coming out so you can generate just about anything it looks incredibly realistic and in the next year or two it's going to look indistinguishable from reality so it's going to put photographers out of business it's going to put artists out of business it's going to put uh, graphic artists and painters out of business for sure i don't know how those professions will will keep up with the advances in ai uh, it's going to it's going to essentially totally make the education system irrelevant you can now get a complete education just from ai and you can make the ai you know the generative ai like bing or chat gpt act as a tutor and the tutoring and the education you can receive from that is far superior to anything most professors can offer you so you can you can gain you know a masters degree level of knowledge even phd level knowledge from this already 20 dollars a month that's it it's incredibly cheap why would you spend like i don't know how much it costs one semester in the us indians spend a huge amount of money to go to the us all all that they are seeking is either go and you know migrate to the west or come back with a, a degree from a us university well all of these degrees are already becoming worthless so it's it's transforming a lot of things it's going to transform the creative sectors uh, when you when you take ai 
and 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 you you uh, combine them with that with robotics it's going to put a lot of assembly line workers and all these workers out of business so it's going to totally transform the world in the next 6 months to the next 10 years it's going to be totally transformed the entire world and um, so it's it's lots of professions will become redundant lots of people will lose jobs thus far i don't see anybody has lost their jobs thus far but we are in the infancy of the ai revolution you know and people have written books about ai and all that but uh, you know so some of these very celebrated books have totally failed to anticipate the rise, rise of the chatbots so uh, i'm not talking about anybody in specific i'm not i'm not trying to create any controversy here but that's the thing so it's going to totally transform the world from the job perspective and the career and profession perspective it's also going to transform the way geopolitics works uh, there are nations that are really investing in ai from a military and geopolitical perspective and those developments are not going to be visible to anybody that is all happening behind closed doors so it's going to totally transform the world in the next 5 uh, to 10 years i right now like i said nobody has lost their jobs thus far as we can see nobody has come out in on, on social media complaining i lost my job because of ai it's not happened thus far it's going to happen it's going to happen so programmers like i i missed that uh, programmers will no longer be needed i mean ai already spits out any kind of code you want it can spit out python code it can spit out cobol code for god's sakes cobol it's an almost uh, you know legacy language from the 1960s cobol is still very important because it runs the ma- mainframes that are behind lots of um, you know legacy uh, systems credit card systems and whatnot it's a, it's still a very big deal if you are a cobol programmer it, it's it, it's a very lucrative uh, skill to have uh, it's a very niche skill now ai can spit out any kind of cobol code that you want uh, identification division and whatever else division all that stuff you know i mean I, it was shocking to see that code again after so many so many years but yeah so ai will put programmers out of business web developers out of business it can create websites you know it can create apps apps on on uh, ios or android so all you will need now you don't even need to know programming you just need to have have ai handhold you and you're going to be able to create apps you're going to be able to create websites you're going to be able to do so many things so it's going to transform the world and it's still a little early to predict how it's going to go but i think it's going to shake up the whole world and people will have to adapt certain things may not be replaceable but i am sure in 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 2 years time you could create this what i'm doing here as an ai i mean ai could output a fake version of me speaking just like me and saying the same things i would so typically say and you would not be able to tell the difference that also may happen um music ai is already generating good music reasonably good music music that you can use in as as a as background music for various videos and things like that uh soon it will be able to generate excellent high quality top quality music that's coming video is going to come so it's going to totally revolutionize the world i'm not sure what the consequences of that is going to be are, are going to be um soon it will happen that you know ai you will have your own personalized ai it will give you exactly the kind of music that you enjoy the various genres and various moods that you have that you like that sort of thing it will write novels for you the kind of tastes that you have based on that and so so much more you may even see 
news coming in various flavors individually tailored to individual to various people and you will not really know what is true and what's not what's right and what's wrong what's fake news what's true news so there's a whole amount of of possibilities out there um and it all depends on how ai is used like any technology ai is just a technology uh so any technology can be used for good or for bad fire when it was discovered was used for cooking which made everyone's life easier it was also used for warfare fire then steel can be used for good it can be used for bad sticks can be good for be used for good as well as bad nuclear energy has good uses and bad uses similarly ai is just another tool in that manner it can be used it depends on who's using it uh so typically it's it's the milit- when any new technology emerges a transformative technology emerges it's typically governments and the military that make the first use of that and so that's also what's happening with ai it's happening behind closed doors we don't know what is what developments are happening but yeah it's going to affect all of us so ai is something that we're going to have to revisit and revisit in great detail who was head over heels for john wick 4 i haven't seen it i think i've seen the first first one or two movies they were good movies keanu reeves is good i mean great guy great actor i haven't seen 4 but let's see maybe good i suppose uh prakrit is kind of a branch or mutation of sanskrit yes it's the the prakrits are a bunch of daughter languages of sanskrit uh, they came after sanskrit uh right uh fff says what would have happened if during the turkic invasions of india a powerful and ruthless king emperor like ashoka was in power with the entire subcontinent united under him it's very clear the turkic invasions would have been smashed the reason the turkic invasions succeeded eventually after 2 3 centuries of attempting to invade india this it, 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 it succeeded because india was not unified politically see political unity and disunity is a cyclical thing cyclical thing there are cycles historical cycles imperial cycles so there have been times when india was unified under a single leadership like the mauryan empire like the kushan empire like the gupta empire uh, and so on and there have been times when india was not unified under a single emperor or or empire and you had lots of different various kings and kingdoms and all that so the turks caught india at at, at the wrong time when india was not politically united lalita ditya muktapida's empire had had gone the gupta empire had gone the cholas had were focusing in south on southeast asia a thousand years ago and the chola empire did not last long after that after the demise of of rajaraj and rajendra chola so the turks started their invasions and they conducted their invasions at a time when india was not politically united if india was politically united under a king like ashoka like under an emperor like ashoka or let's say kanishka or let's say uh, one of the gupta emperors like skandagupta or or samudra gupta there is no way the turkic invasions would have succeeded they would have been smashed out of existence so the, the turks caught india at the wrong time and that's what happened so obviously this is all hypothetical but we can make such predictions based on the cycle cyclical events of history so even someone even the most ruthless and barbaric invader like alexander the greek he wanted to invade india but india was unified under the nanda empire at the time and the invasion was a miserable failure it was a miserable failure so and, and alexander most likely was defeated by this small 
frontier king, small little chieftain called Purushottam, who is called Porus by the Greeks. And he had to go back limping to Babylon, where he died of his injuries. And his, his great horse, Bucephalus, died in the battle. Uh, I think the battle of the Jelam or Satlej, one of these battles. Uh, so when India is unified, when India is united under a single leadership, a strong leadership, it's impossible to invade and conquer India. So that's that's what would have happened if India was unified at the time. Okay, Chirag Avasti says, why can't we find any evidence of kingdoms and palaces of all the great kings of India, like Kanishka, Samudragupta, etc., but we can find their forts. Did they not have palaces at all? Well, look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. I have said this multiple times that Indians, Indian kings did not have great palaces, luxurious palaces. The the, the Indian kings were supposed to be, were expected to be servants of the people and the nation. So that was the greatest, that was the highest morality of the king or emperor to serve the nation and the people, not to serve himself, not to enrich himself or herself in the case of a female. I mean, if you look at somebody more recent, like uh, the great queen Ahalya by Holkar, her, the house she lived in, is it still exists. It was not a palace. It was a regular house. She did not live in a palace. She was a very powerful queen. She was one of the greatest queens we've had in the past thousand years. She did so much good for the people and for the, for the, for, for the civilization and for the people. She lived in a very modest house. Look at the various Maratha uh, kings. The great Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj, what kind of palace did he live in? He did not live in a palace. We have to understand the difference between a fort and a palace. A fort is a defensive fortification. It has military it has a military purpose. It's not a palace. Obviously, you will have quarters for a king for where, where you can you know, have your council and do planning and strategy and all that. And it has to be well furnished and all that. But a fort is a military fortification. It has a military purpose, a strategic and defensive purpose, tactical purpose as well. So when it comes to the greatest of our emperors, rulers, whether it is the Mauryan emperors or the Kushan emperors like, like Kanishka, the Gupta emperors, we know where their capitals were. Where do you find the palace? You do find forts. We One of Kanishka's, the, the forts that Kanishka built, it still exists in somewhere in Punjab. I forget the place. And uh, yeah. And, and the example people give these days is that Abhijit, you're wrong because the Rajput kings of the past 600 years or so, they had palaces. Well, that came much later after the Turkic occupation of India. And, and even those... Those were actually forts with a certain amount of luxury in them. Yes, but historically before India was, before the past thousand years, the past millennium of humiliation, we had purely Indian culture in India and you will not find a palace anywhere. You will find forts for sure, but you won't find palaces anywhere. Even if you go back to the uh, so-called Harappan period, you won't. You don't find any palace anywhere. You, you find big buildings, great buildings, like what they call the public bath, which actually happens to be a temple's pond, and and uh, various other. The greatest buildings are the ones that are used for public works. You don't find any palace anywhere. So the truth is that India's kings and emperors did not have palaces. They did not invest in. They did not use public money, the nation's money, for their personal benefit and personal luxury. They would typically live in reasonably humble. Uh, abodes and uh, they do not have palaces show me a single palace uh, that a king or a queen or an emperor lived in from before 1000 AD from before 1000 AD 
you won't find anything of course after the so called princely states were set up by the british these these princely puppets would build palaces for themselves there are various examples but yeah so that is the answer to this question uh let us see what other questions do we have uh shri balram putin says do you know that we can see planets on google maps if yes then use it to demonstrate for certain questions because map is our best friend yes you can i think we can see uh, the moon i'm sure we can see mars as well let me try and pull that up mars on google maps let's see google mars yes let us do that so it's not in as much detail as you would otherwise have like google earth but we do have it let's see this so this here is google mars yeah so you can zoom out you can zoom in it it's essentially a, a repetitive pattern but yes that's the best map that we have how far can we zoom in ah we can see a reasonable amount of detail here so there are certain uh, reasonably famous uh, locations on mars where is mount olympus i wonder is this mount olympus i click here it doesn't say anything yeah so so the thing is that yes we can uh, we can see the map of mars i'm sure we can see the moon as well google does give you that that facility so yeah yep yeah, that is something that most people won't know so it's good that shri balram putin ji has has brought this to our attention okay rinigan says manipur language is khradai thai khadai khradai became kasai then kathi okay i'm i'm not familiar with the this terminology uh, the manipuri language that i am aware of is the meithi language which is a tibeto burman language it has its own script called meithi maik uh, and uh, in the past the bengali script was used to write the manipuri language as the vehicle to carry the manipuri language but now it's been changed and now the the original manipuri script is used for it i think there are a couple of versions of that script as well so it's a work in progress and i am sure that there must be some kind of relationship between the meithi language the manipuri language and various uh, so called naga languages there are lots of different naga, naga languages uh, there must be some kind of relationship between these languages as well unfortunately our researchers our historians and linguists and geneticists have not really focused on the northeast much so we do not have great amount of insight into these matters it's fascinating a lot of research needs to be done about this uh, the northeast the far east of india is like a gold mine when it comes to research whether it is sociological research or historical research or linguistic research or genetic research it's a gold mine it's an untapped gold mine so much interesting research can be done which will bring the facts to to light you know the far east of india is a beautiful place very culturally unique place a very interesting blend of of traditions and culture and all that so you know it would be good if our researchers would look into this in in more detail Swapnil Mishra says why is the phenomenon of turbulence considered to be the one of the great unsolved mysteries of physics and mathematics well when we when it comes to turbulence we're talking about fluid dynamics fluid flow so fluid flow uh, the equations that that uh, that govern the flow of fluids are uh, what are they called not the klein gordon equation for sure uh, let's google that fluid dynamics 
it's something that i've never really looked into uh because it's not been my field of interest fluid dynamics what are the equations called um Ah, uh, the Navier-Stokes equations. Yes, the Navier-Stokes. So the Navier-Stokes equations are very simple when you look at them, but they are devilishly difficult to solve. And fluid flow, fluid uh, flow, fluid dynamics, the the flow of fluids and mixing of fluids. It's very fractal. It's very chaotic, and there are so many parameters and variables in that. So that's what turbulence is. You know, the the way. fluids flow and mix with each other and there are vortexes and all that it's it's almost impossible to solve an equation cleanly with with that so that's why it's it's one of the great unsolved mysteries of physics one of the interesting things is that when you have a drop of you know let's say you have a tap a faucet and you have water slowly dripping out of it drop by drop so there is there is something called surface tension that keeps the 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 shape of a water drop spherical surface tension in in case you're aware of it so so it it kind of acts against gravity that's why this drop is attached to the tap but when sufficient amount of water comes in the force of gravity overcomes the surface tension and then one drop comes down so when the drop is detaching from the water in the in the mouth of the tap there is a, a certain instant where you have what you could considered to be a singularity over there the, the 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 place at which the drop pinches off so fluid dynamics is an extremely complicated field it's almost impossible to solve equations uh, uh you know fully to to have uh, so that's why what scientists typically do is that they they look for numerical solutions to various equations and they try to model these systems in supercomputers because there are so many parameters and all that involved that you, you need an extremely powerful computer it's typically done in supercomputers and you need a lot of lot of computing power for that so because of that it's it's one of the great uh it's not exactly a mystery we understand how it works we understand the physics behind it we understand the equations that govern turbulence the navier stokes equations it's just that you can't solve them solve these equations they, these are extremely difficult to solve uh so th- so that's the thing about fluid dynamics and and turbulence okay who look at this <laughs> Jasmin Raj Singh says who was Ivan Ivan the Terrible he was one of the great emperors of Russia i don't remember which century he lived in but he kind of consolidated the russian empire and and expanded it greatly and he was very terrible he had this terrible temper i think he even caused the death of his own son he struck him with something and his son died as a result so and and uh, he was very brutal very cruel extremely short tempered but he did expand the russian empire significantly and strengthen russia so that's why he is considered to be one of the strong and great emperors of russia but a very terrible guy so that's what i can tell you in in brief i think there is this this uh, this painting ivan the terrible kills his son of mine yeah there is ivan the terrible and his son ivan so let me put that on the screen briefly this guy the because of his temper he ended up ended up killing his own son and this is a painting of that 
Ivan the Terrible and his son Ivan. So then he realized what he done, what he has done, but there was nothing he could do about it after he grievously injured his son. So yeah, that is Ivan the Terrible, one of the well, one of the more remarkable historical figures from from Russia, from Russia. Right, let's take other questions. As I can see, there are lots of questions coming in. Pratham Kalavadia says, how does learning about history and geopolitics help in business and investing? Look, when it comes to business, let's let's talk about business first. Business is about competition. It's about competing with others who are in your field, uh, in your industry. So what is business? It's about so it's about identifying solutions that affect society and solving those problems and monetizing the solution to those problems. And typically in any industry which is aimed at solving certain problems, you will have various actors who are uh, who are competing with each other in providing solutions. So you have to in some ways cooperate with some of them in some cases you have to compete with some of them so that is extremely similar to what happens in geopolitics we have one planet we have different nations some nations stick together and cooperate when it comes to their uh, their shared interests and in some cases you have nations that compete in some cases you have nations that go to war against each other it's the same thing happens in business so the principles are pretty much similar or almost the same. Investing. Now, even in investing, if you look at geopolitical trends and if you look at the, the investing patterns of the various uh, national banks like the RBI or the Federal Reserve or the, or the Bank of Japan and all that, and you see what they've been doing the past 50 years or 100 years, then you can also learn a lot about investing and in, in, as to how they they rode the various winds of change and how they uh, adapted and changed and molded their investing strategies as to what to invest in. Nations also invest in things. Uh, every nation, the, the National Bank will invest in, in gold, for instance, uh, in US treasury bonds. Nowadays, nations are dumping that. So it kind of tells you how things are going. So... Uh, and to, and to understand geopolitics, you obviously have to understand history well. So, you you know, there is this uh, this book of strategy. It's a book of stratagems called The Art of War. It's written by a, a person called Sun Tzu, who lived in China about 2,000-something years ago. And that book is used in business uh, as, as a book that uh, you can... In, in business, you know, even in sport. So, this the the strategies and stratagems and tactics that you use in warfare, in geopolitics, can equally well be applied in business and in sport and even in investing. So yes, if you can significantly broaden your horizons, study history and geopolitics in detail, you will certainly be able to take the same lessons that you've learned from here, geopolitics, and apply them in business and investing and other spheres of life. So very interesting question. That's something that uh, most people don't quite see. Very good to see this question. Ramai Raj Singh says, how am I supposed to convince a Pakistani about their Hindu heritage and other historical facts, Hindu genocide, etc.? Was recently talking to one and he was confident about his non-Indian heritage. My question is, why do you have to convince anybody? Why? What are you going to gain out of it? What will India gain out of it? 
let them believe whatever they want to believe it's their choice uh i i personally never try to convince anyone of anything if somebody has a set of beliefs i say good luck enjoy we know what the facts are now why do we have to convince others how will it see people have beliefs that they have internalized and they hold on to those beliefs very strongly most people don't want to change their mind most people don't think log- logically rationally and it's it's a fool's errand trying to convince somebody who has no interest in changing their mind no matter how much evidence you throw at them so my policy is very simple i don't waste my time trying to convince anybody people ask me questions i answer the questions it's, it's up to them to believe me or not it's entirely their choice i'm not going to waste my time convincing somebody so i would say that why are you supposed to convince a pakistani about the truth why what are you gaining out of it what will india gain from it so uh, so my answer is why should you do it uh, and, and and i don't really know about any strat- strategy or tactics as to how to convince somebody who doesn't want to listen to the truth so i think it's a it's actually a waste of time please ramai don't waste your time doing all this uh, i'm sure you have a lot of energy and, and and a bit of time so use it wisely and judiciously and don't waste it on people who have no interest in in seeing the truth that's what i would say all right uh wait i thought ivar was ragnar's son are bhai we were talking about ivan the terrible not ivar Ivar the boneless these are two different individuals from two different time periods the spelling of ivan the terrible is i v a n the spelling of ivar the boneless is i v a r there's a difference between r and m why am i even doing this oh god please <laughs> all uh, right what's the future of gaming gaming is a huge industry i think gaming is a bigger industry today than than the entertainment industry i think uh, gaming the gaming industry overall is bigger than hollywood and all all, all of this put together so uh these days you know with the the advent of all these devices portable devices mobile phones and tablets and ipads and and android tablets and laptops or which is like a thing of the past kind of all these things because of this now everybody has a device even 3 year old kids have their own device nowadays so everybody is is engrossed in that and everybody keeps on doing playing some games which gives you this dopamine release and makes you feel pleasure so it's something that's extremely addictive and yeah so it's something that's going to continue so i think gaming is going to be a very big industry it's kind of catching on in india as well you have gaming uh, esports esports is also gaming isn't it uh, so esports is taking off in india lots of uh, gamers prominent gamers are becoming influencers they're making a lot of money out of that so i think gaming is going to keep on growing it's going to keep on growing and i don't know if there are any gaming uh, uh developers or, or or companies in india itself but yeah so what indians consume is is western games earlier we had pubg which is a chinese thing but it's been banned in india for for obvious reasons so i think the future of gaming is bright as an industry it's going to make a lot of money and with the advent of ai you're going to have ai enabled games and much better graphics and and so i i suppose with the advent of ai 
just about anybody could start developing games you will not need a huge team of people to work under you you know a bunch of people who work on the graphics and a bunch of people who work on the storyline and a bunch of people who do, who do the programming the coding and putting all that together you need a big team for that you know it's a lot of money but with the advent of ai i think even individuals could start creating games good games or high quality games and you have platforms like steam i believe and xbox and playstation etc which are some of the major platforms that i can i can think of i'm sure there are more as well so i think gaming the gaming industry is an industry that is going to keep on growing and i think it's poised for for uh, definitely becoming much bigger it's already bigger than the entertainment industry i think it, it could eventually end up dwarfing the entertainment industry uh, to the end users the consumers i would say that use it judiciously it's it's fun to play a game even i've done that i had a i had one of the earlier you know today what's the, what's the version of playstation that we have is it ps4 or ps5 uh, we have one of those two i had a ps2 the ps1 was this enormous box the ps2 was a sleeker box so i i had bought a ps2 i think in 2004 or something and uh, i had a few games that i used to play one of them a car racing game it's more about more like a car crashing game or something so i i used to play once in a while the thing is if you spend your whole day doing this you will end up doing nothing in life so yeah that's what I, that's a word of caution i would like to give you i myself have done some gaming a long time ago i no longer do it uh because i have too much else to do you know so uh, it's 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 a good outlet to you know so let off some steam have some fun but don't do it too much maybe an hour or two maximum per day is i think already too much i think in china they have re- they have restricted kids their online time to about 2 hours per week that's what mr xi jinping has done i think that's a little bit excessive but i can understand the the thought process behind it uh so yeah that's what i think about the future of gaming interesting question that you have asked all right let's see Arya Singh, what are the findings of the excavation of the submerged Dwarka city? What are the research papers I should read regarding it? I have no idea. I don't think any research has been done in the past twenty years. They, I think it was a, it was a, the archaeologist S R Rao who discovered this more the submerged city more than twenty years ago, maybe around thirty years ago. I think it was in the nineteen eighties or nineteen nineties, somewhere around that time, definitely before the twenty first century. And after this discovery, they have done nothing about it. Nothing. the asi is doing nothing as far as i know if i am mistaken i am i will be happy to to admit the mistake but as far as i know they have been doing nothing what should be happening is underwater archaeology and that that site should be well preserved and we should ensure that no dredging happens or no such no 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 other activity happens there i don't even know what's happening there and uh, they they also have discovered the entire gulf of khambat gulf of kambe archaeological complex which is not just one city submerged city it's a whole network of underwater cities so it's like like 10 12000 years old you know um so i don't think any any significant archaeological work is happening when it comes to dwarka or the gulf of khambat archaeological complex i have no idea what research papers exist uh, it's it's i mean i've looked for it i i can find almost nothing so i don't know i'm i'm i have found various articles in various websites in blogs and all that but that's not quite a research paper and it doesn't have the 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 credibility of a research paper so i hope the asi looks into this matter i mean it's up to the government to 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 direct them to do certain things the asi see there are some good people in the asi uh, sr rao dr 
Isai Rao was one of the great archaeologists. Dr. Bibilal, I who Dr. Bibilal was once the head of the ASI. He's one of the greatest archaeologists the world has ever seen. So the ASI has produced some good archaeologists, some some great ones, but the majority of the archaeologists, I believe, are they, they have this bureaucratic mindset and the leadership of the ASI, I mean, whoever runs it is typically bureaucrats. So I don't know what mindset they have, what agenda they have, what outlook they have, but clearly they 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 are they are not doing what needs to be done. So uh, that is disappointing. I have said this in the past that the ASI actually ideally should be disbanded completely and a new professional organization needs to be created from scratch to and the and the funding should be invested in that. So yeah, so I don't really know what's happening with Dwarka. I don't think anything is being done in recent times, in the past 10 years at least. Akshay Kolgiri says, please tell us about Deng Xiaoping and his contribution to China's growth. So Deng Xiaoping came to power after the, after, uh, you could say in the aftermath of the death of the great chairman Mao. And Deng Xiaoping, he took the nation of China in a totally different direction. Under Mao, there was a lot of mismanagement. There was the, there was the cultural revolution, the great leap forward, which are enormous disasters when it came to China. Uh, I don't know, close to a, I don't know, some the death the death toll is between forty and eighty million Chinese people, and it it uh, these economy suffered greatly as a result. There were famines and all kinds of disasters. So Deng Xiaoping wanted a more modern approach. He wanted China to become rich and prosperous. He th- he said, I believe that that being rich is glorious, and we should be rich. Uh, so he set about transforming China's economy and the the way the entire nation was run. He took his inspiration from the great. Uh, uh, the great Singaporean dictator, benevolent dictator, Lee Kuan Yew. Uh, and he said that, you know, Lee Kuan Yew was, was, Deng Xiaoping said that Lee Kuan Yew was fortunate that he had to only turn around the fortunes of a city-state Singapore. So it can be done in Shanghai or whatever, but if you have a nation the size of China, it will take a lot of energy, a lot of effort and a lot of time to achieve something similar to what Deng Xiaoping, uh, to what Lee Kuan Yew was able to do in just 20 years. So he, uh, so after the the advent of Deng Xiaoping, the Chinese sent lots of officials to Singapore to study the Singaporean methods, how they had gone about doing things, and then they set about replicating the same in China. Uh, so Deng Xiaoping is the guy who started the the transformation of China into from from a third world, extremely poor, starving nation into a nation that is now the world's second largest economy. It is Deng Xiaoping who started the process. And to a large extent, it is Deng Xiaoping who is responsible for a significant amount of China's success. And he uh, said that China needs to hide and bide, hide your capabilities and bide your time, which means don't boast, don't publicize your greatness, if you have any. hide your capabilities, work as hard as possible, and wait for the right time. So he passed away a long time ago, but uh, it was Mr. Xi Jinping who, I think in 2012, decided that that the right time is now. And that's what started the wolf warrior diplomacy and China's belligerent, uh, newfound belligerence, which we can now see. It's been there for a decade at least. Uh, So that's about Deng Xiaoping, uh, the guy who totally transformed China. He, He started the process that transformed China. And uh, it was during his time that China started militarizing as well. Uh, the naval 
build up that we that china now has the world's largest navy by numbers um, not necessarily the most powerful navy but definitely the largest navy in terms of numerical strength so all of these things that we that china currently enjoys the root of all that is the shopping so definitely the the greatest leader china produced uh, in the past after the after mao zedong mao zedong obviously did a lot of mismanagement but obviously he also is one of the greats from the chinese perspective so so yeah that's deng shopping all right let's uh, let's see other questions uh just another nerd how do gravitational waves look like in three dimensions and when will you open a discord server that's totally two two very different servers how do gravitational waves look look like in three dimensions go to a lake or a pond right take a stone and drop it throw it into the pond what do you see you're going to see a splash and you're going to see ripples radiate outwards that's what gravitational waves look like in three dimensions so you have length you have breadth and you have height that's exactly like what gravitational waves look like in three dimensions obviously space time is four dimensional so you can't really visualize that because there's the element of time as well and gravitational waves also affect time it's going to cause ripples not just in space but also in time so the actual gravitational waves are four dimensional waves but to think of it in three dimensions you have to think of exactly like what happens when you throw a stone a pebble onto the surface of a lake or a pond and you see ripples radiating outwards in concentric circles that's what gravitational waves look like so when you have a gravitational event like like let's say the merger of two black holes the merger of two neutron stars or neutron star and black hole you going to see gravitational waves radiating outwards in the same manner and the amplitudes means which means the height of the waves is going to be very high when it comes to the merger of two black holes because it's a very very powerful and energetic event so in that case in the merger of two black holes you going to see a gravitational not a wave but actually a tsunami enormous and that's why we are able to detect it all the way over here because it's only the largest waves that the the large that ligo can detect so that's what uh, gravitational waves look like in three dimensions when will i open a discord server i am in the process of opening a discord server it's going to be managed properly and professionally this time last time i i had not hired anybody to do it it was being it was kind of you know not not going well and i obviously don't have a huge amount of time to come every day and interact with people so i need somebody to manage it professionally so it's it's in the process of being set up it actually exists if you if you know where to look right that's about the discord server um all right let's see some of the questions who are caucasian hunter gatherers chg are there some way are they in some way related to india see what is the caucasus let's find the caucasus shall we for that we have to go to the map the map is our best friend so when we talk about the caucasus we're talking about the the caucasus region which connects which is the piece the landmass between the black sea and the caspian sea that region is called the caucasus right it's it's called kavkaz in russian so uh, we have southern russia we have chechnya we have dagestan georgia armenia and azerbaijan that is the caucasus so 
in the distant past you had a bunch of hunt hunter gatherers who lived there those are the caucasian hunter gatherers are they in some way related to india i think see eventually everybody is related to each other because as we know the the best evidence that we have as of today tells us that humanity originated in africa and humans crossed over from africa into eurasia most likely over here the bab al mandeb strait this was the closest point so they somehow crossed over our ancestors from here into the arabian peninsula and the coastline of the arabian peninsula had some greenery so that's why they were able to travel and migrate and once again they were, they had to cross the persian gulf from across the strait of hormuz and they came into asia and the coastal regions again over here were kind of they had some vegetation so they went eastwards and eventually they came into india and india was completely lush green so that's where humanity first settled down after the out of africa migration that is some 75000 or so years ago and it was so india was the first founders zone of the out of africa migration and from india humanity migrated in all directions east west north in south eventually humans ended up in australia at some 60 or 65000 years ago and uh, so it was from india that humans migrated east as well as west and eventually into europe where they encountered neanderthals there was some intermixing of the genetics and so on so the caucasian hunter gatherers were the descendants of all of these to and fro back and forth migrations but where the caucasian hunter gatherers in some way related to india so in that way they were related obviously we need more genetic um, evidence to see if there is any closer genetic affinity between the chg individuals and ancient indians who lived in india at that time so that's what i can tell you what else do we have lots of questions as always this is by anisha recently bhutan's king was given respect in germany just after that for the for the first time a democratic elections took place in bhutan followed by comments on doklam by bhutan is the us behind it see understand the us is the most powerful nation in the world they have an enormous amount of influence everywhere in the world including inside india so uh so i have not followed this chain of events that bhutan's king was given respect in germany see typically when a head of state king queen prime minister president etc goes to another country they are given respect anywhere you go even you go to even if you go to a nation that's kind of your enemy you are given the kind of respect that is given to a head of state so uh, i am not aware of what happened in germany but okay let's say this all this is what happened so germany as we know is a nation that is uh controlled by the us it's under us military occupation since 1945 um and i have obviously heard of the comment on doklam by one of the bhutanese officials about the fact that uh, about and he claims that it's a matter that's uh, that's between bhutan china and india that sort of thing uh so either it's china that's behind it or it's the us that's behind it or maybe both are behind it um so we don't know right we don't know because we don't have the information of what happened of what 
interactions and talks happened between let's say the Bhutanese officials and the Chinese maybe or maybe the Americans or maybe some intermediaries somewhere else. We don't know what transpired. We don't know what happened. And because we don't have this information, this evidence, that's why we can't really tell what happened and who's behind it. But there's a possibility that the Chinese may be behind it and they have gained influence in Bhutan. Maybe there's a possibility that maybe the Americans are behind it and they are trying to destabilize India's relationship with, with Bhutan. Or maybe the, the Bhutanese themselves have made a certain choice. Possibly, perhaps. We don't know yet, but uh, time will tell us. So how will time tell us? We have to keep on observing the various statements that the Bhutanese officials and the government make. And based on the pattern that we observe over a certain period of time, we can make a more precise uh we can we can arrive at a more precise and, and, and stronger understanding of what actually is going on and who's behind it and what the motivations and agendas are. But yes, this is something that's that's uh, currently happening and this is something that we are all going to keep an eye on on Bhutan and and what stands it takes. All right, uh, what else? Kanhai Bhatt says, should Sanskrit and Proto-Dravidian be made the two official languages of Bharat, both of them being the mother languages of their language families. Will that solve the language divide? The so-called Dravidian languages are if there is no such thing as, as a Dravidian language. Okay, this term Dravidian, you will not find anywhere in India's historical texts. It is something that was created by the British to divide India. Okay. So there is also a thing as Proto-Dravidian. Which language is Proto-Dravidian? This is a completely fake, false, artificial category that was created by the British. By Robert Caldwell, the Christian missionary Robert Caldwell. He created this, fra this, this, fra this fake categorization of Aryan versus Dravidian. These are all fake categories. I don't know why we are all so brainwashed and we believe this. The only, what was the language that the Cholas took to Southeast Asia? It was not Tamil, it was Sanskrit. You do find some Tamil inscriptions here and there. But the Cholas, they, they, their state, the language they promoted in Southeast Asia was Sanskrit, not Tamil. When it comes to uh, the Indianization of Southeast Asia, which happened long before the Cholas, it happened around 3000 years ago. That was done by the merchants from Kalinga, present day Orissa. What language do you find in Southeast Asia? Indian language. It's it's Sanskrit. All the way to the Philippines, you have Sanskrit. The only language, this divide that we are talking about, the language divide, is an artificial language divide that has been created by the British. It is being perpetuated and strengthened by certain political factions, certain politicians, for personal gain. Divide and rule that's still continuing in, in, in India. So there is no such thing as a proto-Dravidian language, which is the mother language of, of some hypothetical Dravidian language family. India's linguistics needs to be looked at a priori fresh, not by existing linguists who all are brainwashed. You need a completely fresh look at India's linguistics. If if the so-called Dravidian languages were a separate language family, why are the so-called Indo-Aryan languages so much closer and similar to 
Kannada and Tulu and Telugu, etc. And, and Malayalam, then to German. But, but apparently Hindi is part of the Indo-European language family. And yet Hindi is so much closer, Sanskrit is so much closer to Tulu, to Telugu, to Kannada, to Malayalam, to Tamil, etc. So clearly these, these, these categorizations are completely incorrect. We have to look at India's linguistics from a complete a priori perspective. Start from scratch again. That's what needs to happen. The only language that can be the official language, the civilizational language of India is Sanskrit. No other language. No other language. All right. What do we have? What else do we have? <laughs> Akshit says, should young people enter politics? If yes, how can one start? By joining a political party or creating a new one. Let's say you want to create a new political party. How will you create it? How will you attract people to join your party? What kind of political part? What, what kind of leadership structure will it have? Let's say you st start a new political party. Why should people accept you as leader? You have to ask yourself these questions. And what really goes into organizing a political party and conducting activities? Let's say you form a political party. You convince, let's say, 100 people to join the party. And you convince them to accept you as their leader. How will you run the activities of the political party. You need an office, you need a building, you're going to need money for that. If you want to hold a rally, it takes a lot of organization, coordination, it takes money. You want to hold rallies, you want to uh, hold an, uh, run an election campaign. Do you have any idea how much money goes into running an ele election campaign? Huge, huge, huge amounts of money. Politics is all about money. There's a reason why politics is all about, all about money. So if a young person wants to enter politics, you can create a new political party, but it's not going to get any traction. You will have to join an existing political party. That's the only actual option that exists. You're going to have to join a political party. So it's good for young people to, to enter politics. It's definitely good. Um, and uh, you have to understand how politics really works. You have to understand what is the nature of power. Politics is all about power. There's a huge amount of money that goes into uh, running a political movement and a party. So these are things that you have to look into. So it's good for young people to enter politics, but you it will take you some time to get used to it. And uh, the young people, you know, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of passion, etc. You believe in certain causes, but when you're young, you are naive. That is, that is you know, that's something which is just the, it's, it's a fact of life. If I think of myself when I was 20, how I was when I was 20 years old, 20 years old, I was incredibly naive. I was clueless about how the world worked. It takes time. That's why they say that in politics, if a person is 45 or 50 years old, that person is young. That's what they say. So young people should certainly enter politics, but you're going to have a long period of time in which you're going to be learning. There's going to be a big period of learning, at least a decade in which you will learn things. And only then will you have some maturity as to how to navigate the world of politics. But yeah, it's good for young people to enter politics, for sure. All right. Pratik Jain says, we are providing grains to Taliban. Aren't we supporting the Taliban to disturb and to create problems in Pakistan? Is it white funding by Indian government or masterstroke of Modi government to weaken our enemy? Listen. 
we are india has been supporting afghanistan and pro- providing monetary financial and humanitarian assistance and doing development activities in afghanistan for at least 30 years okay and during this time period you had various governments that were in power and the taliban wasn't in power for much of this time so whatever aid and support india is providing to afghanistan is meant for the people of afghanistan irrespective of who is in power now there is it's not it's not a secret that the taliban is closely not closely but to a certain extent aligned with india uh see when the taliban took over afghanistan which year did it happen a couple of years ago they took over, the americans left afghanistan overnight the taliban took over it was a period of extreme chaos we saw what happened the americans are evacuating evacuating and people are trying to jump on those planes and it was a disaster the americans left overnight it was complete chaos and the taliban moved in to fill in the power vacuum and there was a big period of of chaos and uncertainty it took the taliban some time to take control of the nation so when all this was happening the americans were leaving and various embassies were evacuating india was also evacuating its embassy in kabul and in other places and the taliban provided full support to india full cooperation not a single indian was harassed or harmed or delayed in any way whatsoever nothing happened yeah we know some journalist was 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 shot by the taliban that's a different story that journalist was not part of the indian government um that's a whole different thing but no indian person apart from that one journalist was touched by the taliban or harmed or hampered or abducted or delayed or any such thing the taliban gave full cooperation to india uh so india was able to evacuate all its personnel and also some afghans as well out of uh, kabul and then after the stability came back india has reopened its consulate in various things india is engaging with the taliban on the diplomatic front india is restarting its humanitarian aid to afghanistan the taliban has been asking india to to restart development activities do you know why it's because it india's development activities have helped the common man woman and child in afghanistan india spent about well in excess of a billion dollars in all these activities india constructed dams india constructed highways and roads india constructed the afghan parliament building and much uh, schools hospitals all these things india invested a lot of, lot of money in agricultural works in afghanistan all of these things they have benefited the common man woman and child none of the money india invested in afghanistan has gone in, into the pockets of various corrupt afghan politicians so because of this the taliban also taliban even though it is whatever it is it sincerely appreciates india in what india has done so whatever we are doing is in support of the afghan people it is not in support of the taliban if you send let's say 1000 tons of wheat it's going to who who's going who's going to help it's going to help the people of afghanistan it's not gold we are sending or us dollars we are sending or rupees we are sending we are sending wheat the taliban can't eat all the wheat right they'll they're going to have to distribute it to the people uh so we are supporting afghanistan from from a genuine desire to stabilize the country and what india seeks is a is a, is is a stable and uh, peaceful afghanistan and we india sincerely wants the situation the the conditions to get better for the people of afghanistan india obviously i don't think india has officially recognized the taliban government but india is definitely working with them 
hand in hand in hand in some ways now we know uh, you asking about pakistan here uh, see when the taliban took over people were saying lots of uh, famous geopolitical commentators were saying that this is a disaster for india the taliban are a pakistani creation at that time i had said at that time i had said the taliban is going to be pakistan's number one enemy the taliban are pashtun nationalists and they do not recognize the pakistan afghanistan border which was the durand line created by the british there are significant pashtun majority reg- areas that are currently within pakistan the pashtunistan region the northwest frontier province i said the taliban wants it back they wanted to be part of afghanistan again so there is a big massive border dispute between pakistan and afghanistan and the taliban are pashtun nationalists it doesn't matter who created the taliban 30 years ago today's taliban is an afghan nationalist pashtun nationalist government and they seek this territory back and there are various factions of the taliban also there is the afghan taliban which rules afghanistan now there is the pakistani taliban which uh, the pakistanis consider to be a terrorist organization which is not exactly run by the by the afghans it also will have pashtuns but it is based out of pakistan and it seeks to uh, wage war against the pakistani government and the pakistani army so uh, whatever terrorist activities are happening within pakistan i mean obviously the pakistanis themselves have created the terrorism and the terrorists it's coming back to bite them in the in the back so india is not funding any terrorist activities india is simply helping the people of afghanistan right so india has never supported terrorism india will never support terrorism terrorism is 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 barbaric it is inhuman and it is totally illegal terrorism has to be stamped out wiped out which is why pakistan needs to be dealt with eventually so um, india is not helping the taliban india is helping afghanistan the taliban know this india is helping their people which is why the taliban are significantly favorably inclined towards india the taliban also know that india does not wish to conquer afghanistan or take any afghan territory even in the future when india and afghanistan will again have a common border india is not going to pose any threat to afghanistan they know it and that's why they are so much more favorably inclined towards india than to pakistan despite their religious issues and all that so obviously the taliban are an islamic emirate they are an islamic uh, fundamentalist organization which obviously will from that perspective it would make sense for them to be favorably favorably inclined towards pakistan and yet it's not the case it's because of india's track record of helping the afghanistan the people of afghanistan so india is not going to fund any terrorist activities anywhere whatsoever that will never happen but yes i i, I expect that india will support tal- the taliban government in its uh, in its struggle against pakistani terrorism that certainly will happen and that takes various shapes and forms okay let's see what else shubhajit gorai says why are indians so inferior who says indians are inferior okay let's let's continue i have seen many videshi foreign youtubers making reaction videos on youtube about india those videos get millions of views and they make lots of money average europeans are not like that that's very interesting yeah you have all kinds of reaction videos on youtube 
so reaction to some indian movie like rrr rrr is a big deal these days so lots of foreigners are, are reacting to rrr and these videos get millions of views from india and uh, you also have various pakistani reaction channels that react to indian uh, things that happen in india they react to youtube videos coming out of india and all and indians watch this and indians enjoy watching this and obviously you have uh, european and american youtubers who make reaction videos about india and those also get millions of views so why is it so it's because indians to some extent see indians are not inferior but lots of indians have an inferiority complex understand the difference the difference being between being actually inferior and believing that you are inferior you are not actually inferior but you believe that you are inferior or or that some, some others are are superior that's called an inferiority complex you may not be inferior to anyone but you have been conditioned to believe that others are better than you that's an inferiority complex and most indians unfortunately not most hopefully but many indians have this so they crave foreign validation if a movie comes out in india and people from outside india start praising it then indians will go and watch it and they'll say this is a great movie but if a movie comes out which may be great but it doesn't get any foreign validation then indians will not regard that movie as very good this is an inferiority complex that lots of indians have unfortunately and why is it so where what is the root or the root cause or the origin of this inferiority complex it is the education system and the media the education system makes indians believe that they are you know there's nothing great about india and uh, the education system portrays foreign occupiers and destroyers of india as being good and better than indians like the turko moguls mongol the, the turks they did a lot of good things for india akbar was great apparently and the british totally reformed indian society and got rid of all the evil backward aspects of indian society and they enlightened and liberated us and they gave us this great english language and they gave us western education and they taught indians math and science because india never had these things and they built railways for us and they gave us the british law the judiciary without the british we would have never had anything so all of this is brainwash brainwashing and this is what you are taught in the education system and we are told most indians grow up believing that the british liberated india from the from the moguls from the turks which is not the case the british actually defeated the maratha empire which had already liberated india from the moguls so the education system brainwashes indians into feeling that they are totally inferior to everybody else and the media and bollywood continue that so you are taught a certain kind of thing as when you're growing up and what you learn when you're growing up you cherish that you cherish those memories and you hold on to that for dear life and then after you are a teenager and you, after you grown up you watch bollywood you watch the news media and all that and all of this keeps on reinforcing all these notions that you have and that's why indians have this inferiority complex in which they believe that outsiders are better they are superior so if they say something nice about india we should really rejoice so when an indian movie gets some kind of accolade or award from outside it's like a great celebration in india who cares i mean i don't care but most indians do so that's the reason why it is like this and that's why indians uh that's why these foreign youtubers who make uh, reaction videos or whatever about india they get so many views and it's it's a great it's a great business for them
yeah that's how it is okay um Saurabh says I wasted my 12th standard 2022 in a drop year I want to become an engineer or a scientist can I still become I am addicted to the mobile phone what can I do please guide me listen if you are addicted to, addicted to something you want to break the addiction the best way of doing it I would imagine is to replace that activity with something else which is equally interesting or or uh, or worthwhile uh so listen if you wasted one year that's okay you can always go back the next year do your 12th and continue on the path it's not going to affect you too much in the long run uh if you are addicted to the, to the mobile phone it, it, to some extent it's about willpower put it down and open the book and study right uh so i i don't i am not an addiction counselor or something and i really haven't really faced any major addiction or any such thing so i don't know how one would go about overcoming an addiction i think uh, the i would imagine the best way to give up an addiction is to you know draw into your reserves of will power put down the mobile phone or maybe give yourself um, you know re- come to an agreement with yourself that i will use the mobile phone do all that scrolling and whatever you do one hour a day maximum that will be my reward for doing all the study that i'm supposed to do something like that so you have to become disciplined at the end of the day it's your responsibility nobody else is going to help you out you have to find the strength and the will power and the willingness to do what is what is best for you so the motivating factor is that should be that you want to become an engineer or a scientist that so that should motivate you and if the motivation is strong enough then you will be able to do it so uh it's okay if you dropped one year so what big deal life is long going to live to 100 okay so one year is not going to make a big difference go back the next year study hard get your, get your 12th standard done and then move on in life that is what i would tell you uh, from the big picture perspective pratik says why do latin americans have the sca- same skin tone and facial structure like south asians i strongly dislike this term south asians what is south asia it's the indian subcontinent right so uh So let me go to the map, and let's let's make the map flat for a change. Here's the flat map. So look at the latitudes. Look at the latitude where India is at. If you click here, it says what, thirty four point eight four, and seventy seven point something. So India lies between the thirty sixth latitude, and let's say the equator. so between those latitudes we also have mexico so it makes sense that the people who live in the same latitudes will have a similar kind of skin tone because we get similar amounts of sunlight so uh, and obviously in 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 the southern hemisphere also you have the same latitudes up to 30 or something 36 let's say uh, let's go further around here so that's why the people who live up to up to let's say uruguay argentina and up to the northern part of mexico and all that historically the people who lived there would have a very similar skin color as the people who live in the indian subcontinent so it's the amount of sunlight that you receive that typically determines your skin tone and skin color uh, facial features and all uh, that that is i i don't know we we don't quite have the answer maybe we would need to look into the genetics but skin color i can definitely answer it's because of the same latitudes and the same amount of sunlight that you receive so even people in northern africa 
they would have similar skin tones as the people of India and, and so on. The facial structure, the facial features, yeah, it's true, you know. Lots of Indians, when they go to the US, they are kind of mistaken for what they call Hispanic people because you, you have a, similar, a very similar skin color and similar facial features as well. So when it comes to facial features, I'm not quite sure why it is so. Maybe the answer lies in the, the field of genetics, perhaps. So that's some, some, uh, something that has not quite been researched as far. Aryan says, can there be dimensions in fractions like 1.5 or 2.5 dimension? What are your thoughts on, can there be a third dimension of mathematics? Is first and second a real number line and complex numbers? See, the real number line is not a dimension. The complex number line is not a dimension. That's that's not how, how you look at it. You, you have the complex field and all. So, you have to go deeper into mathematics to understand that. These are not dimensions. These are different ways of looking at numbers. Now, can there be fractal dimensions, fractional dimensions? So, uh, you have Euler's number. Let me put that on the screen. Euler's number. It's called E, right? Uh, I think in school and all, we all learn about the number E, Euler's number, which is 2.718, whatever, yeah? 2.718, etc. It's, it's a... Uh, it's an irrational number. It can be represented as this uh, summation. You know, so uh, recently, Dr. Subhash Kak, who has been on my podcast at least twice, if I recall correctly, at least twice. So he has come up with this new theory in which the universe may not be three-dimensional or four-dimensional or 10 or 11 or 26-dimensional. It may actually be E-dimensional. E-dimensional. So the universe may not have all these dimensions, three or four or whatever, it may have 2.7183 dimensions, which, which makes no sense because, you know, we cannot visualize dimensions in that manner. But maybe our senses kind of don't tell us what really happens, what's really out there. It would be too complicated for our brain, our, our minds to process cognitively in real time. So maybe what we see of the world is an oversimplification of what is really out there. Because see, Look at the color spectrum, okay? Color spectrum. You know the colors, right? The colors of the rainbow, V, I, B, G, Y, O, R, Vibgyor. Now we perceive colors. This is the color spectrum. Do you see pink in here? The color pink doesn't exist in the spectrum. Do you see the color black in here? The black color doesn't exist in the spectrum. The gray color, gray. It also is not part of the spectrum. So black and pink and gray are non-spectral colors. They don't even exist. And yet we see these colors. Which tells you that the brain, the mind, the consciousness is somehow interpreting certain combinations of color, of, of, of the electromagnetic spectrum, light. And the absence of electromagnetic light in some, in some frequencies as the color pink, magenta, or black, or gray. So these are non-spectral colors. So this should give you an indication of the fact that what we see is not really what the universe is. Sometimes it is an oversimplification. So similarly, maybe we have 2.7183 dimensions instead of 3. But we see it as 3. Just to simplify things, because if we see it in the, the universe with the in the true complexity that it has, then our 
little brains will not be able to process all this information cognitively in real time. And if we can't process the information properly, it will hamper our chances of surviving long term. So that's the thing. So it is certainly possible that the universe may actually have 2.7183 dimensions. Interesting. Okay. Let us see other questions. Rahul says, how would a hypothetical war between Rome and the Mauryas have played out in the first century CE? Okay, a hypothetical question. Let's look at the map as always. So to understand a hypothetical war between the Romans and the Mauryas, we have to first understand how far Rome, Italy, is from the Mauryan Empire, which is India. Let's do a straight line distance over here. That's 6,000 kilometers roughly. Uh, if you were to... Uh, okay, let's clear this. Let's say we go to the uh, eastern fringe of the Roman Empire. Let's say we, we go to, let's, let's say, Thrace, which is current day uh, Eastern Europe. And we measure this distance from there to, to the border of the Mauryan Empire, which is Afghanistan, let's say. That is still 3,000 kilometers. So any such war would happen at enormous distances. The Romans would have either to come all the way to India or the Mauryan Empire would have had to go all the way into the Roman Empire. So whoever has to travel large distances is going to be at a disadvantage because you have to essentially live off the land. You have to either live off the land or carry enormous amounts of resources, very long distances, which gives you a significant disadvantage. Or maybe let's say that the war was fought in the Caucasus region. So then the question arises, which empire has more had more resources? So if you, I don't have the GDP figures over here right now, but India at that time accounted for at least a third of the entire globe's GDP. And Europe was a fraction of that, a fraction which means the Roman Empire was a fraction of that. So obviously the Mauryan army, the Mauryan Empire, would have, would have had access to way more resources than the Romans. So your military strength is going to be proportional to your GDP. And the Indian GDP, Mauryan GDP, was way, way, way greater than the, than the Roman GDP, which means that the Mauryan Empire, the army, would have had a significant advantage over the Romans. Yes, we are we are shown Rome, you know, in, in, in popular media, in, in writing, in various TV serials and movies, we are, Rome is portrayed as this enormous, massive, all-conquering empire. The truth is that it was nothing compared to the Mauryan Empire. It was not. The Mauryan Empire never sought to expand out of the Indian subcontinent. So it was a choice that the Mauryan emperors made. If they had chosen to expand and conquer other territories, they would have been able to do it reasonably easily. The Kushan Empire did conquer significant parts of, of Eurasia. The Kushan Empire's uh, borders lay at the shores of the Caspian Sea and the Aral Sea. It also The Kushan Empire also included much of present-day Xinjiang, which is currently occupied by China. There was an enormous empire. It was all done through conquest, military conquest, mainly by Kanishka the Great. So Indian empires certainly were capable of expanding if they so desired. And if a hypothetical war between Rome and the Mauryan Empire, let's say, had happened, the Mauryan Empire would most likely have prevailed 
and defeated the Roman Empire? That's an interesting question you've asked here, Rahul. Okay. Let us see some other questions. Uh, Samarth says, why were Turkey and Hungary not invited to Biden's democracy summit, but, but Pakistan was invited? Pakistan rejected the, the invitation. See, uh, I'm not quite sure what this democracy summit is all about. The US is not really a democracy. I mean, see what's happening. They are, they are politically persecuting their own former president, Donald Trump. He is the first president in the entirety of US history to face criminal charges. So this is a clear example of political persecution of an opponent, of a political opponent. This is not something that happens in democracies. And the US is a two-party state, just one step above China or North Korea, which are one-party states. Um, and obviously, it's now, it's now abundantly clear that the Pentagon has far more power than the White House. Clearly, Joe Biden is not running the country. The guy is not capable of, of, of running himself. And Kamala Harris, obviously, is, well, rather incompetent. So clearly somebody else is running the nation. And uh, that is the Pentagon, the defense establishment, which is the so-called deep state. And so the US doesn't really believe in democracy. The US has been propping up dictatorships and autocracies across the world because it suits them. So it's all so, so democracy is just a stick to beat other nations with. So I am not sure what the agenda is. It's just to keep up appearances that we believe in democracy and we promote democracy and all that nonsense. Uh, India, I'm sure, has been invited. I'm sure India will go go with it and play along. Uh, so I am not quite sure. I've not really looked into this this matter why certain nations were not invited. Turkey, as we know, is a part of NATO. Hungary. I believe is is reasonably closely aligned with the U.S. to a certain extent. Um, so I, I I don't quite know why they did not invite Turkey and Hungary, because maybe they believe that these two nations are already reasonably closely aligned with us. Perhaps maybe that could be the 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 the, the thinking process behind it. Perhaps um, Pakistan rejected the invitation <laughs> because they are anyway not a democracy. <laughs> so yeah, I don't I don't know. All right. Tanush says, what are your personal thoughts about conservative speakers like Ben Shapiro, Jordan Peterson, and what about LGBTQ plus Q, whatever, gay marriage in India? All ah, right. Ben Shapiro is, is, like you say, a conservative speaker in the West. So is Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson was, like a few years ago, he was very, very outspoken about... Uh, individual freedom and 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 uh, traditional values and all that but now he has become very much aligned with the agenda of the state itself so i i i don't take jordan peterson very seriously if you watch some of his earlier videos i'd seen a few earlier kind of it it kind of made sense some of it was was it kind of made sense but uh, some things have become very clear by now that he is a Christian supremacist and a white supremacist. That's become very clear. He believes that, that the West is the greatest civilization that ever, ever existed and the West gave everything that's good to the world and without the West, the world would be in darkness and Christianity is the best thing out there and all these things. So he is clearly a Christian supremacist and a white supremacist. And 
वेस्ट सुप्रीमसिस्ट है बेन शपीरो आई डोंट रियली फॉलो हिम आई डोंट आई हैवन रियली पेड अ लॉट ऑफ अटेंशन टू हिम आई थिंक वंस अगेन व्हेन इट कम्स टू हिम ही ऑब्वियसली इज इज जूश इफ आई एम नॉट मिस्टेकन सो आई एज फार एज आई हैव सीन हिज हिज वर्ल्ड व्यू इज ऑल्सो वेरी मच वेस्टर्न सुप्रीमसी and in white supremacy obviously there's a jewish angle Jew, jews are not really white people they, they, their ancestors were not white people so some of it that is also there but i don't think these people are real role models for the world or especially for anybody in india definitely not for india uh what about lgbtq plus well it exists and let it exist see india has always been tolerant and and india has never ever persecuted lgbtq people we we all know that a certain small maybe 1 or 2% of the human population is like that so let it be let them live their lives live and let live india has always been like that gay marriage listen i believe in progress i believe that we have to respect uh, individual rights we have to respect individual choices so if somebody is gay or lgbtq or whatever it is we respect that let them live their life they're not hurt, hurting anybody they're not harming anybody let them live their life in whatever way they feel is best for them we also have to respect civilization and culture and tradition right we have to respect individual rights and liberty we also have to respect every nation and every culture's traditions we have to respect both both things there has to be a balance now in india's civilization which is at least 10000 years old have we ever had gay marriage we haven't had that so i would say that if gay people want to live together let them live together but there's no need for them to get or maybe if they really seek marriage we can have that the court marriage or whatever but it, it and and so i i'm sure there's a lot of nuance and context to all that i am absolutely in favor of giving them the same rights and the same respect as everybody else when it comes to marriage i think i think it's for the government to make make a choice but it's definitely something that indian culture and tradition has not had so gay people never got they never had the dharma vivaha or any such thing right it it, it was never it has never been part of our culture so we obviously culture is a living thing tradition is a living thing new new cultural aspects emerge all the time and new traditions are formed but i would say that we have to respect what what we have been doing in the past 10000 years and i think gay marriage was never part of indian culture gay persecution and oppression has never been part of indian history and culture never ever it we are the only culture that has never persecuted gay people or lgbtq whatever people but we also have never had gay marriage so i think we need to find some kind of balance between these two things i am absolutely in favor of allowing of of giving the same rights and same respect to the gay people lgbtq people as everybody else but uh, let's not break our culture and tradition for the sake of accommodating western perspectives that's what i would say so listen if 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 gay marriage is indeed something that should happen perhaps let it be the court marriage kind of thing which would not have any religious angle or cultural angle perhaps that that may see i have not really spent a lot of time thinking about this i'm thinking in real time right now so maybe we need to all come together indian society and culture and people need to come together and find some kind of consensus about this the truth is that you know i'm not even sure what the statistics are what percentage of the world is lgbtq 
historically it must it must have been 1 or 2% but today this entire issue has been blown out of proportion and everything in the us the us is a weird society it is a sex obsessed society everything is about sex your your the most important component of your identity is your sexual orientation why why so we need to remember that we don't have to start taking uh, you know lead uh, you know cues from the west and start aping them maybe it's it's fine for them maybe it's the kind of society and and religion and culture they have it's all about everything is revolves around sex in india it's never been like that so we need to find our own way forward our own path and we need not allow them to arm twist us into changing our traditions and culture and society according to what they think is right because that is what's called cultural imperialism we don't have to you know bend to these attempts to to reengineer indian culture okay um let us see what are the questions as i can see as i can see there are lots of questions i i i i okay pakistan okay we have not have we taken any pakistan questions the question is should india attack pakistan and capture or safeguard its nuclear weapons when the tehreek e taliban pakistan takes control of pakistan what will the world do in this case i don't see the tehreek e taliban pakistan taking control of pakistan they can certainly create chaos unleash chaos in pakistan but i don't see them in a being able to take over pakistan uh obviously like i have said in the past i have nothing against the people of pakistan i wish them prosperity and happiness and also their children and future generations but pakistan is a terrorist nation it has to be dismantled and then what needs to happen is is that pakistan needs to be broken up into its components balochistan should become free uh, gilgit baltistan jammu and, and, and pakistan occupied kashmir should come back to india the shakskum valley etc should come back to india uh, the khyber pakhtunwa region pashtunistan should go back to afghanistan should sindh should become free etc that's what needs to happen now obviously the question then is and this should happen hopefully peacefully without any war at all i don't want india to waste its time getting into a war there are there are other means of getting of achieving what you want to achieve the best way to win is to win without fighting the most superior kind of victory is a victory that is achieved without firing a single shot that is the best form of form of victory so that is what india should go for uh attack 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 we don't want any attacks we want to be at peace we want to achieve our objectives very nicely without going to war and that is certainly possible pakistan is on always on the brink of implosion these days more than before so i'm sure we can uh, engineer something hopefully peacefully without going to war uh obviously that ov- gives us raises the question as to what happens to the pakistani nuclear weapons so it is something that's going to be india's headache for sure india obviously the indian government must be uh planning for such scenarios like plan a plan b plan c that sort of thing uh, maybe the americans may also get involved because uh, because possibly some of the pakistani nuclear weapons could have some us components perhaps possibly or some us technologies perhaps most likely it's chinese technology but who knows 
So if there is some US aspect in that the Americans may want to uh, secure those nukes before India does. So it's going to be a race against time when Pakistan implodes. So I, I obviously it, it makes sense that the Indian government must already have war-gamed all the possible scenarios as to what happens when Pakistan implodes or breaks up. And it will be something that uh, needs to be done as soon as possible to uh, secure those nukes. So I don't care what the world does in that case. Pakistan is India's headache, primarily. Secondary headache is for Afghanistan and Iran, but primarily it's India's headache. So it is, I think, going to be for India to act first, act very swiftly and secure those nuclear weapons. Once the nukes are secured, the rest we can take care of in due in the due course of time. Is ISRO's new launch vehicle better than SpaceX? No. See, the most powerful... See, currently, what does ISRO use? We have the PSLV, the Polar Space Launch Vehicle, which is a reasonably small rocket. We have an even smaller rocket, which is something that we're going to use for rapid launches. The SSSLV or something like that, Small Space Satellite Launch Vehicle or something like that. And then we have the GSLV, which has a new name nowadays. It is the most powerful rocket that we have. The most powerful rocket that we have, the GSLV, Mark III or whatever it's called these days, it is uh, not comparable to the best space, SpaceX rockets, which are way more powerful. The Falcon rocket and the new Starship that will soon be tested, those are way more powerful than ISRO's launch vehicles. So, uh, see, you know, I, I am. I, it's pretty clear that we have excellent engineers and scientists and if you give them the go-ahead, they can also start building much more powerful rockets. We have the know-how. We have the technology. The motor, the engine that we use for the GSLV, all you have to do is take 10 of those, put them together, and build a bigger rocket out of that. It's, it's, it's as simple as that. Obviously, it's not as simple as I make it sound. It will, it will entail some engineering challenges, but it's something that we can do. It's our engineers, what our engineers can definitely do. So um, it's a question of not getting the go-ahead from the government. So I think the Indian government does not seem to have a lot of ambitions right now in the present day for ISRO. ISRO is being used as, a, well, there's not a lot of new research that's being done. So ISRO is being used to launch foreign satellites and, gain, and, and earn some money. That's all. So it, it's not ideal. I would have hoped that India would, India definitely in this century needs to become one of the top two or three space-faring nations. That is essential. Because the two or three nations that will lead the world in space exploration in this century are going to be the two or three nations that lead the world in everything. And all the other nations will be led and controlled by the top two or three nations. So India needs to be at the forefront of all these technologies including space exploration. So right now it's not happening. We are still doing, making do with the GSLV, which is not really a very powerful rocket. It's the biggest and power, most powerful rocket we have. But even the most powerful Chinese rockets are far more powerful than the GSLV. The French Ariane is way more powerful than the GSLV. Various, I believe some Japanese rockets are more powerful than the GSLV. And the uh, NASA rockets and uh, SpaceX rockets are way more powerful than India's GSLV Mark III. So 
I think in two, three years, India can develop a rocket that's 10 times more powerful. Definitely in two, three years, we can do that. It's all about the government giving the go-ahead and giving, giving, giving the permission for this to happen and obviously allocating the funding. So these things are not happening right now. It's disappointing, but it's something that we can transform in two, three years if the government so decides. Right. Let's see what else we have. Um, let us see. Let us see. Lots of questions. Do we always have? <laughs> Arman Singh says, if India gets the opportunity to join NATO, which in recent news we can hear, will India join it? Can it benefit us military-wise? So we have to understand what the full scope of NATO is. NATO is a US-led organization. It is owned by America. It is not portrayed that man in that manner. But it is an organization that is completely controlled by the US and completely owned by the US because it is the Western European nations that make up NATO. And these are all American vassal states in one way or the other. The Turks are kind of on the... On the on the border, on the boundary, kind of. They have a quasi-independent foreign policy, but they also have US nuclear weapons on their territory, which is control, controlled by the Americans, obviously. The French also have a kind of quasi-independent foreign policy, but they are in no position to, uh, to not accede to the core demands of the US. So NATO is all about being controlled by the Americans. Okay? And all of these nations, their militaries come under the NATO command. And the, now the top NATO commander at certain point in time may be a non-American, but overall it's under US control. So if India joins NATO hypothetically, India will have to agree to put India's military under NATO command. Do you think that will be acceptable to any Indian person or to the Indian government? Impossible. And there are other, other things that you have to agree to. Political things as well. Uh, your nuclear weapons may come, come under NATO command and so on. For instance, uh, see, see, well, nuclear weapons may not technically come under NATO control. The French have a completely independent set of nukes. Their nuclear weapons are deployed on nuclear submarines, which are always on patrol. So that's what fr gives France their nuclear deterrent, the second strike capability. The UK's nuclear weapons are essentially under US control. Uh, the UK has nuclear submarines, but the nuclear weapons, the warheads, are placed on top of American missiles. And I am 99.99999% sure that the red button, the launch button, is not in Mr. Rishi Sunak's hands. It's most likely in the Pentagon's hands. So, uh, so there's a lot of compromises that you have to make if you become a part of NATO. Your military comes under NATO command. And there will be other things also which may be hidden, you know, secret, uh, certain secret set of conditions that you may have to agree to. So, uh, so I don't think India should become a part of NATO. I don't think India will become a part of NATO. India will cooperate with NATO and the US on certain specific issues. In those issues that are beneficial to India's national interest. India will not become part of NATO, as far as I can see, ever. Uh, India is part of the Quad, which is not a military alliance, officially. 
India also uh, engages with, with various other nations in military cooperation. So I don't see NATO benefiting India military-wise. It may actually compromise India from the military perspective because India may have to put its armed forces under NATO command, which essentially means US command. So if India gets the opportunity, India should say no. India should say that we will certainly cooperate with you. We will extend our cooperation to you based on what issue it is about. Issue-based cooperation. But we will not become a part of NATO and subordinate our army and military to your command. That won't happen. Um, Dr. Jay Shankar's supremacy says, says, don't you get pissed off by seeing the West is now interfering in our internal politics so much after Rahul Gandhi is being disqualified and will not stand against Modi ji in 2024 and 2029. The West has been interfering in the entire world's internal matters, politics, for decades. It's nothing new in India. Certain, you know, let's talk about uh, hypotheticals over here. There are various nations in which entire political parties have been created which are funded by the West. Okay? I am not talking about India only over here because I don't want people to say that I am pointing at make pointing figures at a certain political party. But in various nations, it's happened that suddenly a, some movement comes up and a new political and a bunch of new political leaders come up who come out of nowhere and a new political party is formed and it is closely linked with foreign funding such things may or may not have happened perhaps in india also so this is something that is a long standing policy of the west and they also use ngos to to affect to, to interfere in the internal matters of nations. In, in India, we have more NGOs than schools and hospitals. And lots of these NGOs receive money from the West and maybe from other places as well. So that is another avenue of, of, of uh, interfering in the internal matters and politics of various nations. So this is something everyone... I mean, I'm not sure if everyone knows this, but the people who matter in the government definitely know this. And... I'm sure they are keeping a very close watch, more than we realize, on all these activities. So, listen, you don't, in geopolitics, emotions don't play a role. So, yeah, you may get angry or pissed off, but that really doesn't make any difference. What needs to happen is that the government needs to find effect, effect, effective ways of countering these attempts to uh, interfere in the internal matters of our nation. And you can't counter all of them thus far. You can do it only when you are powerful enough. So before 2010, there was a lot of US interference in China as well. Lots of Chinese Communist Party officials were compromised, if you understand the meaning of compromised. Then after Mr. Xi Jinping came to power, those uh, Western agents in the Chinese Communist Party were dealt with very harshly, if you, if you know what I mean. So when you rise to a certain level of power and you become powerful enough, you can take stronger measures to clean up the internal system and to deal with those who are agents of foreign powers who are acting against the national interest of your nation. 
So it will happen in due time. Right now, India is not that powerful. India is a 3.5 or so trillion dollar economy. We need to first reach 10 trillion dollars of the, the 10 trillion dollar mark. Once we reach that, we're going to be way more powerful and we'll be able to push back harder against Western interference in India and other interference as well. It's not just the West that's interfering. Other powers, including China, will also be interfering in India's politics. So it's just a fact of life. There's no point getting pissed off, either me or the government. It's all about the government taking the right steps. And I'm sure those steps are being taken. But they will not be publicized, obviously. It's for not. It's not for us to know. These things are kept secret so that no one knows about it. All right, let's take one or two more questions. Uh, my views on India building a satellite city in Vladivostok. So India has, I think, said or proposed to build a satellite city or something like that in the far east of Russia. Do we know where Vladivostok is? It's right north of North Korea. So you go to the far east. You know where India is, right? So let's go eastwards, eastwards, eastwards. We know where South Korea is. And then you have North Korea. And north of North Korea, we have Vladivostok. The great port of Vladivostok in the Russian Far East, which is just a few kilometers from North Korea. If you see the distance from there, Vladivostok to North Korea, the border, it is about... 132 kilometers, 130 kilometers roughly, not really far away at all. So Russia will definitely welcome any kind of investment activities from India because India is in no way a threat for Russia and India and Russia have an excellent relationship, a very fruitful and warm relationship. And Russia has also already said in just a couple of days ago that it wants to uh, strengthen that relationship with India further. India and China are the two nations Russia wants to work the most closely with. So if India has proposed building a city of some kind, a satellite city or whatever it is in this region, the Russians will definitely welcome it very much. And obviously, if India is doing it, it will also benefit India in some way. So it will maybe be an Indian outpost that serves Russia and India as well from the perspective of trade and uh, other things, whatever they are. So I think it's good. I think uh, India should do that. You know, hopefully it will benefit India also so substantially and Russia as well. So it's called a win-win relationship. So I think it's a great thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see India being more proactive now. For about two decades, there was this, this policy of, of look east. Well, looking is a passive thing. You can keep looking all day. It will not change the world. But act east is acting. When you act, you actually start changing the world. So India seems to be now actually acting east. Recently, India has sold Brahmos missiles to which nation was it? The Philippines. And India may be selling, sorry, it was Vietnam. Was it Philippines? Philippines most likely. So that is acting east. India is actually acting there. India may also sell these Brahmos missiles to other nations in the in the Champa Sea, South China Sea region, which is again very strong action. And if India builds a port or a, or a satellite city near Vladivostok, it's going to be something that benefits India as well and Russia as well. So it's good. So India is now finally beginning, beginning to get its act together and India is now acting. India is now acting east. 
which is great to see so i think it's a very good and positive and and good development something that we should welcome very much rajat says what is the scope of blockchain technology is a career in it worth pursuing see blockchain is the decentralized uh, internet uh, it's it's blockchain technology uh, the scope is is i think it's great uh so we all know about cryptocurrency we know all know about bitcoin right all of this is built on top of the blockchain the blockchain is something that cannot be it is completely decentralized it's not owned by anybody it's not owned by any government so if you have assets on the blockchain those are going to be those are not going to be cut off by or or censored by the government if you have a genuine cryptocurrency that is truly decentralized like bitcoin for instance then uh it's not controlled by any government so let's say you you have a million okay let's let's say hypothetically you have a million us dollars in a bank in the us and the us can cut off your access to it so if they close or freeze your bank account then there's nothing you can do about it and you lose all the money but if you have the same amount of money in bitcoin on the blockchain then no government can can cut off your access to it and you can use it in transactions for transactions worldwide so blockchain that's just one example of that then you have non fungible talk tokens uh nfts which kind of are a fad right now but eventually they will have a lot of real world utility so there's a lot of development that will happen in that as well i think blockchain could and, and eventually you will have digital currencies you have something called ethereum which is not really decentralized because it is all owned by one company or it's in one place it's not truly decentralized but i think blockchain has a huge amount of potential it can uh, it is essentially permissionless and it is truly decentralized uh, nobody actually owns it and a lot of development can be done on top of that you can have entire websites entire you know uh, tokens uh, you can have agreements that are uh, that that uh, can live on the blockchain i think there's a lot of scope in that i think i think uh, it's not really been uh, exploited a lot thus far so i think it's a career that is definitely worth pursuing most likely it's not a fad cryptocurrencies have come and gone two years ago everybody was into crypto then the bitcoin crashed and all that but i think the the concept is an excellent concept the blockchain concept is also an excellent concept i think it is something that will most likely stand the test of time so there are times when interest is high and there are times when interest is low but if something is going to withstand the the, the test of time then even if interest may be low right now in 5 years time 10 years time it's going to be very valuable i think blockchain is something that will be here to stay it is web 3.0 the next iteration the decentralized web so i think it is a career definitely that's worth pursuing okay i think we will take one more question and then we will be, will be done we've already crossed way past 2 hours um mishal says though you though you didn't pick my question thanks for answering another one on the same topic okay i'm not sure i have so many questions here but anyway i'm glad i answered the question on the same topic um when will i contest in kbc yes i want 1 crore rupees i will contest shall i <laughs> one crore rupees <clears throat> okay let's take one more question 
Akash says, if you eat, do you eat one meal a day? Yes, these days I'm eating one meal a day. Uh, you know, that's ideally what I want to keep on doing. One meal a day. See, typically if you are a reasonably less active person, like everybody else is these, these days, then you need approximately 2000 calories in one day. And it's definitely possible to eat that in one meal, especially if you're a big person. <laughs> so I prefer to eat one meal a day, just one meal and be, and be done with it. Then the rest of the day you're free. You don't have to think about food. Uh, so it's called one meal a day OMAD. Now I don't, I'm not always able to stick to that. Uh, yeah, uh, but that's something I prefer to do. What I don't have any specific recipes. What I do is I need a certain amount of protein per day that will come from a protein source. And the rest of it is just lightly fried vegetables, lots of vegetables or a soup with vegetables. So most of the calories uh, will come from the protein and the fat in the protein source. An example is paneer. Yeah. So if you want, and, and sometimes I take whey protein if I'm if I'm working out regularly. So I, I, I want about 100 to 150 grams of protein, something in between that per day. And the rest of the calories can from, come from uh, roasted vegetables or stir-fried vegetables or something, which will be stir-fried in, typically in ghee. So that's what I do. There is no specific recipe. I think it's a great lifestyle to have. You get all your calories from just one meal. The body adapts to that. It's not going to have any bad effects. And it kind of keeps your glucose level and all that, um, the insulin insulin levels and all that down. It gives you mental clarity. Fasting also helps. I've done fasts in the past, like significant fasts, scary fasts, <laughs> all that. So yeah, go ahead and do that Omar thing and uh, all the best with it. So with that, we are done with today's session. Two hours, 10 minutes. Thank you very much for all the questions. Tomorrow we will have the next episode of the Ask Abhijit Show in which I will take questions from uh, from the comments that you have uh, put in various parts of the YouTube channel. So thank you very much. And I will see you very soon in less than 24 hours time. In, until then, take care. Good night. Goodbye.